Today, the scripture we're looking at comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let us today hear the word of the Lord. Do you know what saying one thing and doing another is called? Hypocrisy. In case you were wondering. Saying one thing, doing another. Hypocrisy. It's a, it's a curious thing when you think about it. Something that we despise in other people. You know, I, I can't believe they would do that. Or I thought I could trust them. But it's also something we tend to excuse in ourselves. You have no idea how much pressure I've been under. At least I'm less of a hypocrite than that guy over there. And and when I'm talking to non-Christian friends about their disinterest in going to church, this may or may not surprise you, one of the things I commonly hear, given as a reason, is, is Christian hypocrisy. Yeah, sure, they'll they'll shake your hand and smile and talk about loving God on Sunday morning, but at home, 
at work, when they're at school, they're no different than anyone else. Here's, here's the sobering reality, friends. Please hear this. Every single one of us is a hypocrite. Every one of us. Christian and non-Christian alike. Okay? Oh, there's a gap. Why do I say that? Because for all of us, there's a, there's a gap between the ideals to which we aspire and the choices we often make. That's what hypocrisy is. And, and I am very thankful. And you, and you should know one of the most important and humbling things about the Bible is that it doesn't whitewash or hide our hypocrisy. Jesus is brutally honest about the wickedness and the reality of, of our disloyalty to God and to one another, even, even among his own followers. And he does not speak as an outside observer on this. He's intimately familiar with the pain of betrayal because he too has been betrayed. And not just once or twice, you know, that hard time in my life, but, but over and over again. The, the passage before us, what Bob just read, it's, it's framed, think of these as the bookends, by two of the most sobering examples of human infidelity and hypocrisy in Jesus' life. And that unfaithfulness on the bookends, the context here, only serves to make the Savior's loving response and charge to us in the middle all the more striking. So whether you are angry about someone else's hypocrisy or grieving the pain of betrayal or, or discouraged by your own unfaithfulness, I think the Lord has a word for you this morning in this passage. The glory of Christ is displayed when we love the unfaithful as he has loved us. There's admonition in that, there's comfort in that, there's warning in that. The glory of Christ is displayed when we love the unfaithful as he has loved us. All of us, friends, have been unfaithful to God. And in response, God has lavished his love upon us to the praise of his glory. We were singing about that. And when we, when we confess our need for his mercy and when we follow his example of, of loving the unlovely, of being faithful to the unfaithful through the power he supplies, then we discover as his people a, a life and a joy that this world can never give. And we become both individually and corporately, a signpost to the very same glory. That the core message of Christianity is something called the gospel. That the good news of all Jesus has done to accomplish salvation for mankind, rescue us from sin. So here's the question that I believe this passage as a whole really helps us answer. What, what does a gospel-centered response 
hypocrisy, disloyalty, betrayal, fill in the blank. What does it look like? What's a gospel-centered response to those things look like? I think Jesus' words here give us several really important answers. Here's the first one, point number one. What's a gospel-centered response to hypocrisy look like? Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Because spiritual privileges do not ensure spiritual loyalty. Let's think about this. Look at verse 21, chapter 13. We, we have a, another, really a, a deep glimpse here of Jesus' humanity. He doesn't just live in our world. He shares our sorrows. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, which, which of course begs the question, if you're a careful reader, what things did he just finish saying? Well, look back at verse 18. Right on the heels of exhorting his disciples to serve each other as servants of Christ, he adds this, verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe ego eimi that I am he. Jesus reminds us here, friends, that the trouble that that was filling his soul as a fully human person was that not everyone who appeared to be following him on the outside was actually part of his chosen people. That's what was troubling him. One of them is about to, to rise up in enmity and opposition to him, as it was with King David in Psalm 41, so it will be with David's greater son, Jesus. And notice, Jesus isn't surprised by this. Do you see that? He's actually announcing his betrayal to his disciples before it happens. Why would he do that? So that when it happens, they wouldn't conclude, oh, well, you know what? I I guess Jesus finally met his match. He he finally encountered an obstacle he couldn't overcome. He succumbed to forces outside his control. No, Jesus predicts his betrayal so that when it happens, their faith in the truthfulness and authority of his word would be strengthened, not diminished. So they would believe, even in, even in tears, that Jesus indeed is still the great I am. The God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh in human flesh, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. Even when he's betrayed. And yet, despite all of that, Jesus is deeply troubled by what's about to take place. I mean, Let's eliminate possibilities. Is he deeply troubled because he lacks faith in the Father? No. No, his faith was perfect. No less than his obedience. He's troubled because he's about to experience one of the greatest sorrows a human being can ever experience in this life. Betrayal. Betrayal hurts. Hurts. 
especially when it's somebody close to you. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've experienced that. Look at verse 21, because Jesus tells his disciples here, he's troubled in spirit. He says, listen, it's, it's not gonna be a, a known enemy who betrays me. It's, it's gonna be an intimate friend. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It's not somebody out there. It's somebody in here. So someone who, who looks on the outside like one of my most committed followers, but their heart is far from me. And, and the fact that the disciples here immediately have no idea who Jesus could be possibly talking about. Does that frighten you, friend? It should. It sobers me. Why? Because it reveals the hidden and deceitful nature of sin. You, or I, can fool everybody around us. Everyone. But you can't fool Jesus. And so he says, response to their troubled questioning, it's the one to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Don't, don't just blow by that, okay? Because that word morsel, piece of bread, it's repeated three times in verses 26 through 27. That, that's a really big deal. Why? Because eating or, or breaking bread together in the first century was a significant act of friendship and loyalty. You, you professed love, devotion, faithfulness to someone by eating with them. And so for the final time, think about this, the Savior extends an offer of fellowship to Judas. He's not just throwing red paint on him. Hey, it's that guy. Look, get him. <laughs> no. No, he is for a final time saying, Judas, I love you. I'm inviting you inviting you to humble yourself and cry out for my mercy. And Judas could have done that. He could have humbled himself, renounced the sinful desire that Satan had stirred up in his heart back in chapter 13, verse 2, but he did not do that. He did not resist it. Rather, the Lord's kindness hardened his hypocrisy. And he runs out into the night to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Friends, his, his actions, Judas' actions, they are a really, really serious warning to you. J Judas experienced, what's the warning? Judas experienced the blessing of untold spiritual privileges, okay? He's, he spent nearly three years of his life, day and night, 
living with Jesus, you know? He'd seen all the miracles. He'd listened to his teaching. And yet, he failed to take it to heart. And eventually, he came under the direct influence of Satan himself. Not in a way that that absolves Judas of responsibility for his actions, but in a way that intensified the spiritual power of evil animating his enmity toward God. Listen to J.C. Ryle. On all the coasts of England, what an illustration this is. There is not such a beacon to warn sailors of danger as Judas Iscariot is to warn Christians. He shows us what length a man may go in religious profession and yet turn out a rotten hypocrite at last and prove never to have been converted. He shows us the the uselessness of the highest privileges unless we have a heart to value them and turn them to good account. He's exactly right, friend. You, You can grow up in a Christian home. You can sit under biblical preaching for decades. You can talk like a Christian. You can take communion like a Christian. You can appear to everybody around you to be an amazing Christian. And none of that, none of those privileges guarantee that your heart is loyal to King Jesus. That's sobering. Looking like a disciple to everybody around you means nothing. Judas did. Notice nobody said, I knew it was you. When Jesus even identified him, they were still confused. They they, they were taken aback. Look Look at verse 28. It's so clear. No one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Heed the warning, friend. And tend well to the condition of your own soul, okay? Don't don't say, please don't say this. If I come clean with my struggles, pastor, people will get hurt. It's better for me to stay quiet and suffer in silence for their sake. You are dead wrong, friend. You're terribly wrong. Because what the people around you need the most, what, what, your, what your parents, what your spouse, what your church needs the most, isn't protection from the pain of hypocrisy revealed, but rather to see the redeeming power of God triumph gloriously in your life. And that begins with you humbling yourself, acknowledging what is really going on, and stopping with the, sh- the show and the hypocrisy. Ask the Lord to search and know you. No matter how long you've been a Christian. And to reveal any area of disloyalty to him. And then cry out for grace to repent. See see him holding the bread 
dipped in wine to you, inviting you to his table. Receive it, not in hardness of heart like Judas, but with grateful mercy and gratitude. A gospel-centered response to hypocrisy starts with guarding our own heart. Lord, have mercy. Here's the second way we respond. Point number two, we don't just guard our heart. Walk in love. Walk in love because the cross displays the distinctive mark of Christianity. After after predicting his betrayal and, and watching Judas go out into the night in, in verse 30. Jesus says something in verse 31 that, that arguably is just as if not more shocking. Look there. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. How, how could anything remotely glorious come out of, be found in, be brought to pass by the most despicable act of human betrayal the world has ever seen. You ever been betrayed personally? Somebody been disloyal to you? Discovered somebody's hypocrisy, been hurt by that? And immediately felt, thought, concluded, this is an utterly godless planet. Nothing good here. How could anything glorious come out of betrayal? Because, friends, that is what our faithful God has been doing from the very beginning. (laughs) That's why? What has he been doing from the very beginning? Taking, Genesis 50, what men intended for evil and using it for God. That's his MO. He, he did it through Jesus' death and he's still doing it today in your life if you're, if you're willing to take up your cross and, and follow him. So think about this. How does the cross of Christ, the betrayal, death, all that we're launching into here, how, how does the cross of Christ glorify the Son? Think about it. It it displays the fullness of his love for his unfaithful bride. He he died in our place so we could be forgiven and come home to God. It it reveals the perfection of his obedience, the the infinite worth, weight of his his righteousness far exceeding the dead and weight of our sin. And it magnifies the the power of Christ over sin. And death and Satan proving that that no spiritual enemy is too great for the God who saves. I could go on. The the cross of Christ glorifies God the Son. How's how's the cross of Christ glorify God the Father? Think about that. How so? Well, it it displays the depth of his love and his willingness to give to us the one thing he treasured most, his only beloved Son. It, It reveals the height of his wisdom. In taking what is low and despised in the world, death on a cross, and using that to accomplish the greatest good the world has ever known. It it magnifies the perfection of his justice as the son receives in his body the, the full weight of the father's wrath stored up against the sin of the world. And it confirms the trustworthiness of the father's word. It brings to pass the deliverance he promised his people thousands of years beforehand. 
It glorifies the Son. It glorifies the Father. Point being, if you want to see God's goodness, wisdom, love, justice, righteousness, power, faithfulness, compassion, severity, holiness, and mercy, and the utter supremacy of his glory, you need to see the cross of Christ. That's where you look. Revelation 5 verse 11. You're not the only one looking there. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It is his slainness that makes him worthy. Of what? Periodic gratitude on Sunday morning? No. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in the eyes of the cosmos. You, you realize. Think of it this way. You ever been hiking in the woods and come across a river? The current was so strong and deep that if you just stepped into it, you'd be completely carried away. I saw that in the Alps a month ago. If you were living in this world, you were living in a cosmos where the current around you, in front of you, behind you, underneath you, above you, is God's purpose to glorify his son, Jesus Christ. And whether you want him to or not, you will be carried along in that current because the purposes of God are unstoppable. And by the way, the son glorifying himself, the father glorifying himself in the cross of Christ, that's the kindest thing God could do for you. It's not just like, oh, I guess it's going down whether I want it to or not. Why didn't anybody ask me? No, it's the kindest thing God could do for you. Why? Because nothing brings the soul more joy than when the all-glorious one is held up for us to see. That's the kindest thing God can do for you. It's, it's not selfish in an unloving sense. God glorifying himself in Christ is the most loving thing he could ever do for you, friend. And Jesus knew that that glorification to, to the right hand of the Father, through his death, resurrection, ascension, would soon take him out of the world. He wasn't gonna be around much longer. And so look at verse 33. He knows he's about to go home. And so he gives his followers a, a parting word of instruction. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. So here's what you must do. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Do you realize that, that Christian love is radically distinct from the world's love? Radically distinct. We, we don't start with what feels good or right to us. We don't start with what feels good or right to other people. What do we start with? We start with Jesus, right? With the way he defines love through his words and his deeds. So, so how does Jesus respond? Remember the book ends. How does he respond in the midst of human betrayal, hypocrisy, and disloyalty in John 13? 
How's he respond? Well, he keeps moving toward the cross, doesn't he? We're, we're a few chapters later. He, he lays down his life for us. He dies so that we could live. He's faithful despite our unfaithfulness. He's loyal despite our disloyalty. And though we betray him, he doesn't betray us. He, he perseveres in love even to the point of death. And that reminds us that the, the newness of this commandment, verse 34, is not the call to love as much as it is a new standard for love, a new definition of love. What, what, what kind of love does the cross establish as the standard? Love in the midst of enmity. Love in the teeth of opposition. Love in response to betrayal, hypocrisy, infidelity. A, a costly love, friend. A death to self kind of love, a, a, a cruciform love that is utterly impossible for you to feel or practice or endure in apart from a supernatural life transforming encounter with the love of God in Christ. Only Jesus' sacrificial love can melt your selfish heart and, and empower you to love like he does, to love the unfaithful to love the disloyal, to love those who betray you with the love we've received from God. You know, our, you just be honest about this, you know, our, our default setting is what? To love other people however they love us. Right? That's our default. Look at verse 34, because I'm going to rewrite it in my image. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as they love you, you also should love them. I wish. Not really. But that's what the world does, isn't it? That, that's not Christian love. Christian love is compelled by God's love and imitates God's love. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, hey, over here. <laughs> and hates his brother, he's a liar. For whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, even when they are unfaithful, Lord? Yes. How about if they're disloyal? Yes. But what if they betray me? Yes. Who's setting the bar in your life right now for the way you love other people? Is it them? Or is it Jesus? Is it the way they're treating you? Or the way Jesus has treated you? The world will never ask the reason for the hope that is within you, Christian, unless they see something in you that they cannot explain. What's that? Giving the people in your life the opposite of what they deserve 
Because Jesus has given you the opposite of what you deserve. The world sees that. That's going to start asking questions. That's, that's when they say, um, okay, give me a reason for the hope that's within you. That, that, it's that kind of love that makes the church distinct from the world. We don't ignore the unfaithful or disloyal, those who've betrayed us. We don't avoid them. We don't attack them. We don't sabotage their reputation in person or online. We, we do two things instead of all that. One, we speak and act in ways that affirm their intrinsic worth and dignity as an image bearer of God. And second, we give ourselves sacrificially to them in word and in deed, that they might become more lovely. That they might become like Jesus. Love in both affirmation and gift is the distinctive mark of a true Christian. Here's the third way we respond in a gospel-centered way to hypocrisy. We'll end with this. Point number three, practice humility. Practice humility. Why? Because spiritual confidence is a false, spiritual self-confidence is a false gospel. The end of this chapter, the, the second of the two bookends, is really, really important for us, friends. Because Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is about to do. Look at verse 36. Lord, where are you going? I mean, he's totally clueless. No, no idea he's about to die, rise from the grave, ascend to the Father. Jesus replies, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Translation, it's, it's not yet time, Peter, for you to leave the world and, and go home to the Father. One day you will die and go there, but not yet, Peter. Not yet. This is my hour. This is my time. You cannot do what I'm about to do, pal. You can't lay down your life for the sin of the world. We, we've done a lot of things together, Peter. This I must do myself. Verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? <laughs> I love Peter. I want to go where you're going. I want to do what you're doing. Whatever it takes, whatever it requires, count me in. Jesus, listen, I don't know about that guy, you know, whoever that's going to be, the betrayal thing. I'm really committed to you. I'm your man. Sign me up. I'll lay down my life for you. Verse 38. Jesus answered, Peter, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter had a lot of commendable qualities, but there was one big thing he still lacked. 
and that we can lack. It's called humility. It's humility. Peter, Peter thinks of himself. Can we not do this? As someone who, who's ready and able to do great exploits for God. Peter felt strong. Jesus knew he was weak. Peter was focused on everything he wanted to do for Jesus. Jesus knew what Peter really needed was for Jesus to do something for him. Peter thought he could remain faithful. Jesus knew he would not. It's, it's not just the spiritual pretenders, the knowing hypocrites, friends, who need the Lord's mercy. It is all of us. That's the point. Even as believers, we're, we're beset with weakness, frailty, and sin. We, we can do nothing apart from him. We're all prone to wonder. There's not a day in your life, Christian, where you don't stand in desperate need of the Lord's mercy. Oh, come on, pastor. Quit condemning people. I haven't done anything scandalous. I sure hope you're not. Well, maybe you haven't. At least publicly, but did you love God more than your own comfort or your own reputation for the last 24 hours? If not, you were spiritually disloyal. Did you trust everything you say you believe about God this week or did you waver even slightly in unbelieving fear or anxiety? If so, you're a hypocrite. Is, is there anything in the last month that, that you knew was wrong but you did it anyway? If so, you betrayed the Lord. Even as Christians, friends, our, our lives are just riddled with infidelity. And I don't say that to condemn you. I, I say that to humble you, to humble us, because we need to experience the, the divinely intended effect of honestly answering Jesus' question. Look at verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Is the, is the glory of your good works the banner over your life, or are you a sinner who never outgrows your need for mercy? Peter thought he was beyond betraying the Lord. And in our pride, we do the exact same thing. Listen again to Ryle. We fancy sometimes, like Peter, that there are some things we could not possibly do. We look pitifully upon others who fall and please ourselves in the thought that, at any rate, we would not have done so. We know nothing at all. The seeds of every sin are latent in our hearts, even when renewed. And they only need occasion or carelessness and the, the withdrawal of God's grace for a season to put forth an abundant crop. Listen to this, friend. A humble sense of our own innate weakness. A constant dependence on the strong for strength. A daily prayer to be held up because we cannot hold up ourselves. These are the true secrets of safety. Peter had to learn that he was more like Judas than he thought. So do we. So do we because we all need what? The, the sin-conquering, spiritual life-restoring power of the grace of God. 
The question is not, does Jesus know that? Is Jesus eager to give it? The question is, do you know that? Are you willing to ask for it? And are you willing to receive it? That's the question. Pride says, look at me, Jesus. I can do it. Humility says, Lord, I can't. And would you please forgive me for even thinking that I could? Rescue me, help me. I need you. <laughs> only, only, I, I need you to help me love the way you do. I need you to keep me faithful because otherwise I'm wondering. I need you to bring me back when I do begin to wonder. I can't be the husband, father, pastor, or friend I'm supposed to be apart from you. A gospel-centered response to human hypocrisy means practicing humility because spiritual self-confidence, well, that's a false gospel. Guard your heart walk in love, practice humility. That's the point. And as you do that, friend, as you follow the Lord in, in loving the unfaithful as he has loved you, know this, Jesus will glorify himself through your life. Big time. Hypocrisy isn't easy to deal with, whether it's in us or around us. And disloyalty and betrayal will always be painful. But listen, those things... They're the Father's chosen state for displaying the greatness of his glory and the supernatural character of his love. That's exactly what he did through Jesus. And Jesus wants to do that through you. Let's pray. Father, to read and think about the reality of your betrayal is to be rightly warned. And so we ask you for grace right now to heed the warning, to guard our hearts, to examine our hearts. We pray for power to love the unfaithful, those who have betrayed us, just like you have loved us. Lord Jesus, forgive us for patting ourselves on the back and saying things like, at least I didn't pay them back. Lord, your standard is so much higher. You call us to love them like you love us. Jesus, we, if we're honest, um, we can't do that. <laughs> and frankly, there's a part of our sinful hearts that doesn't even want to do that. Why would I love the unfaithful? Why would I love the disloyal? Why, why would I love somebody who's betrayed me? Lord, turn our eyes back to you. Grant us the sweet fruit of humility. Forgive our self-righteousness, pride. And make us a people that love the unfaithful the way you do because you have loved the unfaithful like me. Thank you that when our 
faith in you and our trust in you are wavering. That when we prove faithless, different areas of our life, thank you, Jesus, that you remain faithful. Guard us from despair as we examine ourselves. Turn our eyes to you and keep them fixed on your love for the unlovely. Amen.